Oscar Wilde was born in Dublin in 1854. He was the son of William Wilde, a surgeon, and Jane Wilde, the Irish nationalist writer who published under the name Speranza. Oscar was educated at Trinity College Dublin and Magdalen College Oxford. Of his works, which included poetry, plays, prose, children's stories, journalism and political writing, he is now best known for two pieces. The first is The Picture of Dorian Gray, an 1890 novella of a beautiful young man who sells his soul for eternal youth. On its publication, the Daily Chronicle called The Picture of Dorian Gray heavy with the mephitic odours of moral and spiritual putrefaction. The other work is The Importance of Being Earnest, a farcical comedy full of wit, mistaken identity and handbags. Eclipsing the fame of everything Wilde wrote, however, is the story of his downfall. In 1895, after unsuccessfully prosecuting his male lover's father for libel, Wilde was found guilty of gross indecency with other men and sentenced to two years hard labour. Released from prison in 1897, Wilde immediately left Britain and died in poverty in France in 1900. The Wildean persona, the witty, loquacious, glittering, aesthetic personality drawn to luxury and decadence, established the stereotype for one kind of gay identity in the 20th century. The story of the trials, with the brandishing of previously hidden letters, the voicing of sensational testimony and the revelation of what was hidden, have, in unmasking Wilde, produced a creation myth for the discovery of same-sex desire. But the problem with seeing Wilde solely as a sexual radical is that it's not sound, historically or biographically, as an accurate way to understand Wilde's significance over his lifetime. A London street ballad published after Wilde's disgrace has as its refrain, Oh, Oscar Wilde, we never thought that you was built that way. And many who knew Wilde in real life were exceptionally surprised. Frank Harris, journalist and editor, who'd been Wilde's friend for over a decade, refused to believe the accusations until Wilde confirmed them himself from prison. Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, joined Coulson Kernahan, Wilde's copy editor on Dorian Gray, in assuming that Wilde must have suffered some sort of insanity or mental illness that completely overturned his personality. Attributing Wilde's sexual behaviour to something pathological, Kernahan regretted that no post-mortem had been done on Wilde, which might have revealed a neurological abnormality, indicates fantasy ocular attitudes to homosexuality, but also tells us that even though Wilde has subsequently become the blueprint for gay identity, he didn't fit with contemporary perceptions of the homosexual. But also, and ironically, given that most people now who are really interested in Wilde and sexuality take a liberal, egalitarian perspective, Focusing on Wilde only through the lens of his homosexuality and disgrace erases the most important woman in his life, his wife, Constance Lloyd. Not only was Constance Lloyd a fascinating author, public speaker and feminist in her own right, she was key to Wilde's public profile. Her activities, friends and clothes were discussed in the newspapers and Mr and Mrs Wilde were constantly described as attending first nights together. One 1880s description of the celebrities at the Lyceum, Henry Irving's theatre, finishes by listing Mr and Mrs Oscar Wilde and many other well-known and beautiful people in the audience. They were, from the time of their marriage in 1884, a prominent, even a power couple. Wilde, in instigating the 1895 trials, was less noble than ill-advised. Prosecuting the Marquess of Queensbury, Alfred Douglas's father, after the Marquess accused him of posing as a sodomite, 
brought about a downfall that could perhaps have been postponed, if not avoided. Presumably, if it had, Wilde would have been free to keep on pursuing younger men, including prostitutes, in secret, which is after all what he had been doing and which sounds rather more conventional. For me, what's really radical about Wilde is not his life, but his work. The inspirational Wilde, the revolutionary Wilde, can be found there. In 1892, the poet and anarchist John Barlas admired Wilde as a revolutionist, who used not dynamite, but a dagger. A dagger whose hilt is crusted with flaming jewels, whose point drips with the poison of the Borgias. Wilde's enemies also identified his work as dangerous. Among the newspapers that rejoiced at his arrest and imprisonment, the editorial in the Daily Telegraph celebrated an end to Wilde's work, which had not been sane, moral and serious rather than his sexual deviance. The Telegraph felt that life could not be wholesomely lived with Wilde, not because he was guilty of gross indecency, but because his system relied on what the Telegraph called brilliant paradoxes. Wilde's writings constantly urge individual freedom and the rejection of external authority. In his essay, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, published in 1891, Wilde argues that a real Christian would always reject authority because he knows all authority to be evil. Wilde's first play, the 1880 Vera, explored political rebellion and the overthrow of the Russian Tsar and was written at a time when the real Russian dynasty was becoming increasingly unstable. In fact, Alexander II was assassinated on the 13th of March 1881 while Vera was in rehearsal. But it's in Wilde's society plays that we encounter Wilde's most sustained radicalism. These are the four comedies first performed between 1892 and 1895. Lady Windermere's Fan, A Woman of No Importance, An Ideal Husband, and The Importance of Being Earnest. These plays, often revived and now extensively studied, were, until the late 20th century, dismissed as essentially frivolous, taking at face value Wilde's subtitle for Earnest a trivial comedy for serious people. In fact, the plays offer us the wittiest of theatrical attacks on late Victorian sexual morality. In the 1890s, British and continental theatres were much concerned with the society problem play, depicting the disturbing figure of the fallen woman or the woman with a past. In England, the quintessential fallen woman play was Arthur Wynne Pinero's The Second Mrs Tanqueray, First staged in 1893, it stars Paula, the serial mistress who tries to start again as the wife of Aubrey Tanqueray and a stepmother to his delicately reared daughter, Elaine. Paula is self-loathing and repentant regarding her past life, but cannot achieve a happy future. She ends up committing suicide. Admittedly, her husband and stepdaughter end up wishing they'd judged her less harshly, but the lasting impression is of the 17th century ducking stool used to test for witchcraft. Witches float, but innocent victims sink and drown, proving their innocence but dying before they can enjoy it. Paradoxically, in a Victorian schema, Paula's suicide proves that the second Mrs Tanqueray was a good woman who had deserved to live, after all, but too late for it to make any difference. Plays like the second Mrs Tanqueray drew heavily on French sources like Sadhu's Odette and Mayak and Alevi's Frou-Frou, where fallen women invariably die penitent and miserable. Wilde's first comedy, Lady Windermere's Fan, opened a year before the second Mrs Tanqueray and at the same theatre. In that play, 
Margaret Erlin is an adventuress who has abandoned her husband and child and is now blackmailing her son-in-law, Lord Windermere, to finance her triumphant return to society. She ends the play very much alive, rewarded with a rich husband and a new life abroad, and is described in the play's closing line as a very good woman. While Paula Tancre spends most of her play hating herself, Mrs. Erlin tells Lord Windermere, I suppose, Windermere, you would like me to retire into a convent, or become a hospital nurse, or something of that kind, as people do in silly modern novels. That is stupid of you, Arthur. In real life we don't do such things, not as long as we have any good looks left, at any rate. No, what consoles one nowadays is not repentance, but pleasure. Repentance is quite out of date. Mrs. Erlin is not the last of Wilde's unrepentant fallen women. In A Woman of No Importance, Rachel Arbuthnot is brought face to face with Lord Illingworth, the man who seduced her and fathered her beloved son, Gerald. Not only does Rachel refuse to marry Lord Illingworth at Gerald's entreaty, but despite having lived the isolated religious life expected of a penitent fallen woman, she explains to Gerald that she was never actually sorry, telling him that, For though day after day, at morn or evensong, I have knelt in God's house, I have never repented of my sin, and later, I would rather be your mother, oh, much rather, than have been always pure. This is particularly radical, coupled with the fact that Rachel Arbuthnot evidently played a far more active role in her fall than most of her dramatic contemporaries. We learn that she was virtually the same age as Lord Illingworth, rather than seduced by an older man, that it was her who left Illingworth, and that she refused an allowance from his mother. In conservative Victorian eyes, this subversion of the trope renders Rachel more culpable than most fallen women, but she's also a lot less regretful. Rachel also refuses to relinquish her son to Illingworth, rejecting what is effectively a joint custody proposal where each parent will see Gerald for six months of the year. And this is fascinating because it anticipates what would become a key element of suffragist campaigns, the maternal right to custody of children. Like other fallen women in late Victorian plays, Rachel Arbuthnot has spent some time working with the sick. In 1884, perhaps the most popular late Victorian playwright, Henry Arthur Jones, had written Saints and Sinners, in which his penitent fallen woman, Letty, is killed off by nursing infectious patients. Not so Rachel Arbuthnot. The younger heroine of A Woman of No Importance is Hester, an American heiress. Having previously urged that all, woman, all women who have sinned be punished and that the sins of the parents should be visited on the children, Hester ultimately delivers the play's religious message that in Rachel Arbuthnot, all womanhood is martyred and that God's only law is love. Rachel, her son, and his new fiancée, Hester, ultimately leave for America. Like Mrs. Erlin, they are unable to reintegrate into society and Wilde isn't offering us a vision for a new socially liberal London. But America feels far more real than the all-purpose out of England Mrs. Erlin demands of her new husband in the last act of Lady Windermere's fan. Hester is very wealthy, and America recurs throughout the play as a utopian, republican alternative to England. In Hester's words, better, wiser and less unjust. And in the final moments of Rachel and Lord Illingworth's last con confrontation, Rachel hits her seducer across the face. In January 1895, an ideal husband opened at the Haymarket Theatre. 
The husband in question is Lord Robert Chilton, a prominent and lionised MP whose career is built on having sold a state secret years before. Mrs Cheveley, the glamorous adventuress who makes Mrs Erlin and Mrs Allenby look like kittens, blackmails him by threatening to reveal the truth that would cost him his career, and which in turn almost destroys his marriage to Lady Gertrude Chilton, a beautiful Puritan in the mould of Lady Windermere and Hester. An ideal husband completes an escalating trio of Wilde's plays in which young people are forcibly bereft of their conventional morality. Lady Windermere discovers that morality is more complicated than she'd thought, that good and evil coexist, but is allowed to retain the illusion that her mother is a dead saint, not a living adulteress. Both Gerald Arbuthnot and Lady Chilton, however, discover that their entire lives and identities are based on lies. Gerald is illegitimate, and Lady Chilton only has her title because her husband is a criminal. Both have to learn to love and forgive, and unlike Gerald, Lady Chilton continues this new, fuller life in the middle of London society. Crucially, unlike Lady Windermere, Gertrude Chilton forgives her husband without having required forgiveness herself. Lady Windermere temporarily leaves her husband. At the end of An Ideal Husband, at Lady Chilton's instigation, Robert Chilton accepts a seat in the Cabinet. What then of the importance of being earnest? Wilde's wittiest and most joyful play, W.H. Auden called it the only verbal opera in English. There are no criminal pasts, and the only secrets are farcical rather than issues of state. Instead of a fallen woman, we have Miss Prism and the redoubtable Lady Bracknell. Instead of the puritanical Lady Windermere, we have the hilarious Cicely and Gwendolyn. Where is the radical Wilde? Again, the answer lies in Wilde's women. Throughout the play, female desire is a much stronger force than male. While Jack and Algie assume false identities to sneak between London and the country, Gwendolyn and Lady Bracknell move freely and openly. When it looks as if Algie and Cecily won't be able to marry until the latter is 35, the teenage Cecily asks Algie if he could wait that long. He assures her he could. She refuses, saying, I hate waiting even five minutes for anybody. It is Cecily who controls the courtship she's already imagined through her diary, consistently undercutting Algernon's conventional wooing. When he addresses her as little cousin Cecily, she points out that she is more than usually tall for her age. When he claims to love her wildly, passionately, devotedly, hopelessly, Cecily witheringly tells him that hopelessly doesn't seem to make much sense. Meanwhile, at the play's centre is Lady Bracknell, who tells us she had no fortune of any kind when she married Lord Bracknell, but never dreamed for a moment of allowing that to stand in her way. And even Ernest returns to Wilde's obsession with sexual hypocrisy. The play's last minutes are pure farce, as everyone scrambles to establish Jack Worthing's real identity. When he mistakenly embraces the governess Miss Prism as his mother, she retorts, scandalised, that she is unmarried. Jack Worthing, missing the point, protests that, after all, who has the right to cast a stone against one who has suffered? Cannot repentance wipe out an act of folly? Why should there be one law for men and another for women before trying to hug her again? Wild women offer a plethora of radical alternatives to the female icons of Victorian drama. His manuscripts show that he revised the characters of young ingenues like Mabel Chilton and Cecily Cardew to make them stronger, wittier and more sympathetic. His virtuous wives and self-righteous heiresses are shaken in their moral absolutism 
and exposed to the social taboos of crime, scandal and illegitimacy, and they flourish for it. Most strikingly of all, wild fallen women issue both the convent and the grave, refusing to repent. Even Mrs. Cheverly, the least sympathetic of wild sexually transgressive women, serves to expose the hypocrisy of the adored politician Lord Chilton, telling his wife that it is because your husband is himself fraudulent and dishonest that we pair together so well. <laughs>